Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, You on Blog Talk Radio. Mind, Body, Spirit, You is a collaboration between five inspirational and unique women who have joined together with the intent to assist you in making your life the very best it can be. You can find us at www.mindbodyspiritu.com. There are many live shows and podcasts offered each month, and all are available in the free archives under the Mind, Body, Spirit, You tab at Blog Talk Radio. Our shows cover a variety of topics, healing, spirituality, health and wellness, metaphysical concepts, and scientific discoveries. Many of our shows allow time for you to call in and ask for assistance on your journey of transformation and discovery. We are all aware of the quickly changing perspectives about our minds, our bodies, our spirits, and our world. And that is exactly what we are here to discuss. So please, join us in the spiral of life and together we will learn, grow, and transform. Here's the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Holistic Health Hour with me, Holistic Life Strategies Coach, Aleka Thorvalson. This unique and inspiring show allows us to look at our lives in a whole new way, tuning into our health, our wellness, and happiness from a mind, body, spirit, and soul perspective. And it's my intention to create a new kind of dialogue about our health, about our bodies, about our relationships, topic of tonight's show, and our lives, empowering transformation from the inside out. So, yeah, welcome to the relationship series. This is, this is a big one. I'm actually not quite sure how many parts um, I will actually have at the end of it. I have my master outline. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly how long it will take me to, to work through it all. We'll see where it goes. Um, but I do know tonight's show is part one. So we're all on board with that. Um, and before I start with the show, let me just say thank you for the great feedback on the last few shows. I have I get such a pleasure out of answering questions, getting feedback, um, getting your observations, having you share your stories. So thank you. The last show I did on the inner critic got a lot of feedback. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad it was so helpful for, to so many of you. I got some good questions, um, and I got a lot of people just thanking me for it. And I also got a lot of people giving me the names of their inner critics, which was great. Um, name it. I love it. 
Um, and if, if you want to listen to any of the past shows I've done or anyone here at Mind, Body, Spirit, You, you can get in touch with me via the Mind, Body, Spirit, You website or my own website, which is aleka, A-L-E-K-A, sky.com. You can find me on Facebook under Aloha Healing Arts. That's probably the, the social media that I utilize the most. But you can also find me on Twitter and you can find me um, on Google, Google Plus, right? So if you want to share, you know, what you think of tonight's show or any show, if you have questions, if you want to leave a comment, or if you want to schedule a session at some point and just really get that one-on-one -on -one attention, you can always get in touch with me via my website. Um, and if you're listening, if you're listening live as it's streaming through Blog Talk Radio, um, this is a recorded show. So that means I will not be taking calls this evening, but you are absolutely welcome to send me any feedback through um, the Facebook page I just mentioned, my own personal Aloha Healing Arts Facebook page, or through the chat room at um, Blog Talk Radio. As I play the show, I will be manning the chat room. So I'd love to hear from you there. Okay, and I suppose we should just get right on with it because this, as I said, this is a really big topic. Um, I, you know, and it's interesting that I haven't really tackled this topic yet. I mean, I think I have. I think that, you know, all of my shows sort of hint around it, talk about it. We can't talk about integration and projection without talking about relationships or shadow, right? But I really wanted to explore it specifically and further with all of you. Um, in my coaching practice, this is definitely one of the most frequent issues that arise and, and one of the reasons why clients come and see me um, because I think relationships are such a big topic that take up um, basically every area of our life is involved in relationship in some way. So there's many, many, many layers. Right? I mean, and they can simultaneously be one of the most joyful and, and infuriating things on the planet. It, it, nothing has the capacity to trigger us like relationships do. Right? They can seemingly have the power to make us feel expansive and connected and alive and then want to crawl into a hole and be a hermit for the rest of our lives. Right? So relationships are a huge trigger force, which means there's a ton of learning. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you get that. You probably know that because you are living it. You're here living it with me. We all are. So relationships can be a big area of learning and a big area of confusion for many of us. So my intent with tonight's show is to really bring some clarity and understanding and perhaps offer you new choices in the way you explore your relationships with others, your relationships with the world, and maybe your relationship with yourself. So throughout the series, we're going to look at many, many aspects of relationships. And we're going to ask the questions, what is the purpose of relationships? Is there one? Why are relationships so amazing and infuriating and terrifying and hard at times? You know, why is it? Why do we have the polarity? How about soulmates? Do we have soulmates? How do we know? How do we know when a relationship is over, right? And really, how can we find healthy and lasting relationships? What does that even look like? 
Right? I, I think this is, that's part of a place of confusion for us. How much destiny or choice do we have around this topic? Right? Or is this a faded thing? Are relationships faded? The people that we meet, we're, we've set up ahead of time. Right? Or how that's supposed to go, well, however that works. So if you often find yourself in similar situations with other people, maybe picking the same partner's different story, right? or if you're struggling to feel heard, or if you feel exhausted, invalidated, confused, if you find yourself airing the same grievances and same stories over and over again with no real resolution or understanding, then this show is for you. This series is for you. So keep listening. Because the truth is, if you are alive, you are in relationships. Your parents, your siblings, your girlfriend or boyfriend, your spouse, your kids, your in-laws, your coworkers, your boss. Right? So rest assured that there will be relevant information for you throughout this series and today in all of your relationships with other people. And specifically, the relationship you have with yourself. So that's just, you know, some of the area that I'm going to cover in the series. And I imagine that more will surface as we go deeper. And if you have a specific question about relationships or a story or um, a comment, please send it my way. And I will be happy to share it and answer it here um, anonymously, of course. So, you know, that's the whole series. But today... I want to introduce a topic that is really important to the discussion of relationships because it defines one of the most common dysfunctional issues within them. So we're going to kind of look at what's not working to be able to understand how we can make it work better. So we're going to be talking about codependency and its cousin in polarity, right, counterdependency. So understanding how these forces show up in our lives and in our relationships can really help us become aware of any blocks or unhealthy patterns that we might have in place. Because we are the common denominator in our relationships and we are the only point of change. We cannot change what we can't see or what we don't acknowledge. So this show is really all about illuminating some of the dysfunctional patterns, namely co-encounter dependency, with the intent to transform, change, or shift them. And I think this is a, this is a tough one. This, this co-encounter dependency really has the ability to go deep quickly. So before we just dive right in, I, I just want to offer some compassion that if you are, fi you are finding relationships confusing, um, challenging, or exhausting, just know that you're not alone. If you're triggered, if you're over it, if you want to bail, right, if you feel rejected, sad, furious, frustrated, if you're struggling, please know that you're not alone. We all struggle here. So I think we can really channel some self-compassion before we go deeper into this terrain. It is quite likely that you have learned what you have learned about relationships, what to expect, how to be in them, right? From people who are just as confused as you are right now. 
I think in some ways, when it comes to this stuff, it's sort of the blind leading the blind. We sort of pass on our patterns and then pass on our patterns and then pass on our patterns, perhaps shifting them a bit as we move forward, but they still get passed on. I think relationships are one of the most misunderstood aspects of our human experience. Because in a, in a major way, they are a reflection of all of the misunderstood or shadowed or unconscious parts of ourselves. So deep breaths, right? Compassion. Because nothing has the capacity to trigger us quite like relationships. You know, as I, as I sit with that, I really think back on the times of my life that I have felt really desolate and alone, right, and just deep despair has been around relationships, loss in some way, right? So we're all in this together. We, we've, all, we've all been here. So codependency, let's just go with it, right? I imagine you have heard this term before. If you're listening to this show, you probably have. Um, it's, it's all over the self-health genre. It's, it's been around for a while now. Um, there's lots of books. There's lots of support groups. There's lots of healing retreats um, and seminars set up around this term. So I would encourage you to, if you find this show interesting, um, to explore it further with yourself. Um, certainly, you can look at my resource page on my website. I usually have resources listed. And you're welcome to get in touch with me for specific resources that I find super helpful around this. So there are just as many definitions of codependency. And there's even some debate about just what it is. You know, if it fits into the disease model like addiction sort of has, or is it more like a syndrome or a condition? Is it an extension of addiction? Is it a reflection of addiction? What is it, right? We're not going to really debate all that today. Um, we'll leave that to the professionals out there that are figuring it out. But I think it's interesting to ponder that we still aren't quite sure exactly what to call this thing. Um, the way that it came about, sort of the history of it, very briefly, was in the early 60s, um, alcohol treatment centers and programs started to become more evident and widespread. And what was interesting is that initially there wasn't much attention um, or interest really put on the people, right, namely the family or, or the supporters of the addict. The attention was put on the addict itself or themselves. It was assumed that you know, the people that supported the addict would be relieved and overjoyed when the addict finally got sober. Um, but what was interesting, you know, to note was that wasn't exactly what happened. It was assumed that the addicts were the one with the problem, right? So once they got better, everything would be better. But in fact, as the addicts drinking began to decline, the caretakers, the people around them, their rates of depress depression seem to increase. Additionally, you know, as it was noticed, many of these supporters actually left the addict after they got sober or even tried to sabotage the sobriety. So this was, this was confusing to many. Why was this? Why was that happening? Why were these supportive people right, not being supportive, and why was the addict's recovery seemingly to affect them in such a negative way? 
enter the term codependency. So what was discovered was these people had issues too. The supporters of the addicts had their own stuff going on and they needed as much help as the addict. So initially the definition of codependency was forged sort of in partnership with the addiction model, particularly to substances, namely drugs and alcohol, but you know, it can certainly you know, pertain to other addictions as well. The, the codependent relationship then was where there was this one person who was the out of control addict and then we had this other caretaker person that was in control, air quotes, right, and held it all together. And, and I want to note something here because it's, it's a subtle line, right, between compassion and codependency. Of course there is value in being nurturing and kind and supportive and empathetic, right? But when there is an imbalance in this, when there is an imbalance in the giving and the receiving, that's where codependency begins to show up. Compassion means you care, but you do not assume responsibility for another person's life. That would be more like codependency. Compassion means you are supportive, but you don't have a vested interest or a need to control the best outcome for them. That would be more like codependency. You, compassion means we can offer empathy, but we do not have their feelings for them, for the other person. What happens in codependency is that the boundaries get foggy, where one person begins to allow their sense of worth, esteem, purpose, to be determined by how well they are doing uh, taking care of another person. Right? It can also mean that their worth, esteem, and purpose are reflected by how well the other person is doing. So behavior, classic codependency behavior, is sort of this self-sacrificing, um, martyr-type way of being. Um, and it does show up, and it, there's, likely a, there's likewise a disconnect and an inability to get their own personal needs met. So in essence, Codependency, especially in the classical sense, is an attachment, addiction, right? We can use that word here. So it's very foggy here. Like, is addiction codependency? Codependency addiction? Again, another show. But codependency is an attachment to being needed. So the addict, right, the addict, out-of-control addict, gets to play that out-of-control role, and the codependent gets to be in control, which creates a perceived sense of power and safety. So this can often look like people feeling like they are very responsible for everyone else, but they are not plugged into or responsible for their own lives. Now, Melody Beattie, um, who, if you, you know who she is, if you know anything about codependency, you know her name. She wrote many, many, many books on the um, topic, and she is one of the true pioneers and leaders in the field of codependent recovery. Um, and she defines codependency as, quote, a person who has let another person's behavior affect him or her and who is obsessed with controlling that person's behavior. 
And I, I think in many ways that definition is, is spot on. Codependency can absolutely look like that. It's, it's important to note that over the years, though, the definition of codependency has expanded a bit, where it, it definitely has this caretaker addiction model, right? But it's, it's shifted so codependency can also be defined as a coping strategy developed during childhood by conditioning and or experiences where as a child, the emotional needs were not met. So what happens is there's this deep internalized sense of unworthiness or insecurity. Instead of a healthy environment where the child might feel supported, accepted, and allowed to sort of naturally differentiate or individuate and have this, this centralized internal locus of control. Um, there are conditions present. Now we're talking stuff like addiction, abuse, trauma, or shame. Something happens that forces an emphasis on being externally focused because the inner self is deemed unworthy or insignificant. So there's whatever has happened has created a sense of unworthiness and then there's this shift that happens where rather than going inward to resource the self, there's a sense of going outward. So what develops is this, this behavior um, or a need to channel a sense of worth or self-definition or safety externally rather than having a sense of healthy autonomy. Now this then creates codependency and dysfunctional patterns of living and problem solving that we often take forward in our own lives. So then this looks like, can look like caretaking behavior. These patterns can certainly explain why codependents can get attached to taking care of others because they're focused externally, right? So, you know, one, one definition of codependency really focuses sort of on that addiction classical model. And other professionals are sort of saying, yeah, you know what, though? Codependency can happen, yes, in addiction, sure, but in other ways. And it's really, it's really centered around this sense of unworthiness and then behavior that ensues to try to heal that unworthiness by getting external validation. People-pleasing, that kind of thing can look like, can, so then it can look like classic codependency. I think it's important to recognize that we, we all arrive here on Earth um, very vulnerable to this condition because we are innately wired to seek outside instructions, approval, acceptance, and connection. And as children, we see our parents as our idols, as our gods, and we are completely dependent on them, not just for our survival, but to really understand who we are and to feel good about ourselves. Um, we, we cannot survive on our own without that connection. And certainly, we cannot survive and um, grow well without that validation. Um, in a way, we, we sort of 
come here, you know, whatever this experience is, asking, who am I? And then we readily look to the people around us and our environment for answers to help us define who we are. Therefore, you know, what, what happens is we do what we need to do and we become what we need to become in order to receive acceptance and connection. So we recognize quickly what wins acceptance and praise from people we idolize and what doesn't. Um, and, you know, to some extent, I think even in really healthy families, we might not feel good enough in some ways. And we might create a little bit of that inner, I'm not good enough, and so we externally try to validate ourselves. You know, I think we all experience the conditioning and shaping of what is appropriate, quote-unquote, and what isn't. You know, in this family, we do this. And in this family, we never. You know, you can fill in the blank. Um, so to a large extent, of course, we know that this conditioning is necessary for our survival and in our society, which is the whole reason it's there in the first place, because psychologically it works. But the degree to which we experience this conditioning can vary a great deal and depends on what messages we get, how we get them, and most importantly, what happens when we decide to assert our individuation or individuality or we push against them. So in a way, we come in asking, who am I, when in reality, we are sort of asking, who do you want me to be? And I, I talk a lot more about how that works and how that shows up in the Inner Critic Show, so listen to that. Because I think that I just want to make clear that we sort of all come in with this need to externally validate ourselves. So we're sort of set up, you know, to be codependent in some ways. Um, and in a healthy family now, we get doses of this conditioning and and plenty of chances to be autonomous and separate at the same time. You know, we see, we might get examples in a healthy family of our parents being accountable, real, they allow their flaws to show. We get healthy examples of honesty and boundaries and we don't, we're, um, there's not this hierarchy where our parents are their gods and we know nothing, you know, um, that we're allowed a voice, that we're allowed to sort of a, a, a level playing field of equality. Um, we, you know, these, these healthy examples of boundaries are so important because then we can know that we are our own people, you know, we are our own person, and we have a healthy understanding of what we are responsible for and what we are not responsible for. We are not responsible for their happiness, they are not responsible for ours. We can have our own ideas, um, we can be trusted to make our own decisions, and we are supported right, and counseled and guided, but we are really allowed to individuate. You know, that's, that's in a healthy family. And, and I think even if we live in pretty normal and healthy families, we can still to some extent be um, codependent at certain times. There's, there's a lot of sort of theory out there that says we are all a bit codependent. And I, I agree with that because I think we all hustle for connection and acceptance to some degree or to feel, un, or to feel worthy in some way, you know, to feel this sense of unworthiness inside. Um, I, I think one of the ways that shows up so much is take a look at our external-based culture, right, which is all about 
um, defining yourself through external means. If you have more money, the better body, the better house, the better job, the better children, somehow you're better. You know, so I think we're, we're sort of, uh, to some extent, we all have to wrestle with this issue. If there is dysfunction present, though, in the family system, this, this balance can shift considerably and codependency can be a real problem. So the conditions experienced determine how severe the codependent patterns can show up. Um, and, you know, to the extent that codependency shows up in our lives often is determined by the severity of what we experienced and the depth of the feeling of our own unworthiness. You know, in general, pretty classically codependent people typically grew up in environments with dysfunctional examples of power. So typically, as I said before, trauma, abuse, shame, addiction. What, what has happened created an experience where their needs and feelings were blocked, criticized, ignored, expression. So remember when I said that we see our parents as idols, right, as gods? And this is true. Now, if there is dysfunctional examples of power present, then what, what happens is we begin to blame ourselves. We become the problem because we cannot blame them. That would, that would be a threat to our very survival. They can't be wrong, so we must be. So, you know, as I've said in last shows, we have to edit large parts of ourselves for safety and connection, right? Um, and we create holes within. Feeling responsible for the pain of our parents is a clear indicator of codependency. And if it can't be them, then it must be us. So this is where we can internalize a very deep sense of unworthiness and insecurity and then become very attached to outside validation. I think the, the sort of the, the depth of the hole we feel inside is the depth that we need that outside validation. And if we are trying desperately to feel approval, feel empowered, if somehow we could just be good enough, right, then we'll be okay. So we seek it externally. We become really good at being exactly who we need to be, and we never are able to ground in who we really are. We may be so afraid, right, or unaccustomed even to our own innate being that we just focus on learning and accommodating and pleasing others. Um, and it's very likely if you've been through things in your life like this that you may not have had the luxury of having an inner world because we are busy surviving. We, we don't go through the necessary, um, the necessary developmental patterns or, or cycles that show up that sort of lead to the next stepping stone of individuation. We're sort of initiated right into the tribe of adulthood before we go through the necessary growth. And... It can look like, you know, any of the patterns that we deemed acceptable or working as, as a youngster in these situations get, get taken into adulthood. 
So one of the things that can show up is we may have had to have been hypervigilant in our ability to track the interstates of others as a survival strategy. So then we continue to do that, you know, tracking others before ourselves. In, in dysfunctional families, there is, there's this confusion around what being empowered looks like. So there's rigidity in some ways and chaos in another, right? There's an abundance of secrets. There's an abundance of unhealthy boundaries. So we never get really clear examples about what power, what love look like. You know, we don't, we don't know what they look like. So what we, the messages that we do get about power and love are confusing and terrifying. You know, we might get messages like, nope, don't talk about it, don't feel. You better not tell anyone. You know, or if you've had an addict for a parent, like I have, it's your job to protect me and keep me happy. You know, and deep down inside, when we hear these things, we, we think there's something wrong with us. And these, these can be verbal messages where we're actually told these things and nonverbal messages because, you know, most of our communication is nonverbal. Um, one of the things I remember distinctly about my experience was my mom, who was an addict, um, and I've talked about her before. She's sober now. Good for her, right? Awesome job. But there was a lot of years she wasn't. And one of her um, tactics of reestablishing connection with me when she felt me trying to assert myself and set healthy boundaries for myself, which was I need to not be around this, you know, um, at the time, my, my parents were divorced, and I would choose to stay at my dad's house because I didn't have to deal with the addict. There were other things that were going on in that, you know, place, but I was at least away from that. And as, if, as I would claim my power, she would threaten suicide. Um, and every time it worked, right? So I got this message that not only was it my job to keep her healthy, but it was my job to keep her alive. I had the power that she could literally um, eradicate her from this earth. That was a huge amount of responsibility to have at seven. And I remember feeling very um, exhausted and scared and pressured. And my life became a way of trying to keep her alive. So there were many, many times that I went against my own boundaries you know, my own self and what I needed. And I did what she wanted me to do because the threat of her existence not being there and I would be the cause was, was devastating to me. Um, and so there's, this, there's this, this power that gets imbalanced in such a way and these messages that show up keep us from finding out who we really are. You know, and you can see from that, I'm going to talk about that, what happens as we get older, right, is we're not tracking ourselves or tracking our lives through ourselves anymore. We, when we have a decision to make, rather than look at what we need to do, we look at what everyone else thinks we should do. Or caretaking becomes such a habit and a way of being and a place of safety because that was truth. I felt control when I had the ability to make the decision. There's a certain sense of safety. If I went to the house and I saw her, then I knew she would be okay. Right? So you can see how confusing these messages can be. And 
In difficult situations like that, we often learn to give our power away as a necessity for survival and safety. So what can happen, as I just explained, is we begin to channel our own sense of will and self-worth through others first. We learn to determine how okay we are is based on how okay you are. As long as you're safe, then I'm okay. I can handle anything else. It's as if we begin to assume a whole new identity that we create with the intent to feel safe and empowered in our own reality. Right? We have to take care of them if they're not taking care of themselves. Who else will? We don't have the capacity to understand that we are our own people and we, can, we don't have to do that. We're not, we're not able to have differentiated or be healthy enough to know that what healthy boundaries even look like. So maybe we caretake because that makes us feel safe. And it not only just becomes habitually familiar as a behavior, but it becomes part of our very identity. So if you grew up in an environment where the needs of others eclipsed your own needs, then your own sense of identity and worth were likely enmeshed in another. These patterns set in motion continue long after childhood. And that's where we see codependency showing up in relationships later. Another point that I want to make, that if we never felt real nurturing, we tend to stop seeking it. And, and we'll, we'll settle for whatever kind of nurturing we get. Right? Um, and, and number one, to receive real nurturing, we actually have to feel good enough. And we know that's flawed if we, we grew up in dysfunction. And the other thing that shows up is to accept nurturing makes us feel vulnerable. Receiving is hard, which isn't an option if we're, if we're looking at the life through the lens of needing to defend or protect. So maybe we focus on giving instead. So this is another way the caretaker role becomes a safety role. And as we grow, the identity solidifies, and we just continually attempt to feel safe by giving and focus on controlling the external world to feel safe. So control becomes the norm as our sense of worth is dependent on their success or failure. And maybe if we can control our external world, we will finally feel safe enough. And maybe if we can do our job, whatever that is, we can take care of them, we can be perfect at whatever that looks like, then we will finally feel worthy. And maybe we will finally feel at peace. But of course, that never works. Right? To the codependent, control, this concept of control is important. So the control or lack of it is a central point. And there, what I want to say about that, because sometimes when we talk about codependency, we say, oh, they're so manipulative or controlling. I want to point out, control equates with being safe and being empowered, which is likely something that the codependent got very, very um, confusing messages about and probably didn't have. So then codependent behavior comes from the fallacy of belief that we can positively influence our inner self by somehow controlling our, ex the, our external world, like people, things, events, and ourselves. So the codependent caretaker's primary reason for caretaking 
is not to nurture. Remember, we talked about that. That's not compassion. It's to feel personally in control and finally safe or empowered in some way. But this kind of control, of course, because it's based on something external, um, are inconsistent and ever-changing. So then what happens is when these expectations aren't met, right, um, then, then, there's, then there's more fear, more powerlessness, and there can actually be a few things can show up. Why bother? You know, victim. Why bother? Um, or maybe fury or rage if we can't control. So class, classic codependency is classic conditional love which is more about control, controlling me or you or more than anything else. Because control means safety. So at the core of counter and codependency, it is about safety. And I want to make that clear. The more we control, the more scared we feel. Having some control is not a bad thing. But trying to have control over something or somebody which we have no control is dysfunctional. We cannot control others. But it is what we do to protect ourselves emotionally. And I think that's important to remember when we're working with ourselves here. Is that this is about wanting to feel worthy and safe. Um, you know, and... And, and counterdependency, as I just mentioned it, let me, let me talk a little bit about that. It's related to codependency, yet it's not as well known. Um, but it does show up as sort of this externally focused coping strategy. It just looks a little different. Codependency tries to defend against feelings of abandonment or rejection, right, by avoiding confrontation and pleasing, caretaking while counter-dependency tries to avoid abandonment by pretending we don't need anyone. I got this one. I got this one, for sure. You know, and would go stoic or strong. So counter-dependency learns that the best way to feel safe and then get their needs met, right, is put up a thick wall of defense. Why risk connection when connection hurts or is not available? There's too much to lose. So rather than try to fill the unworthy hole, right, we feel within, we ignore it completely by walling off the world. We become stoic and we become strong. And then even when we are in relationships, we keep part of ourselves to ourselves, focusing on giving to the other rather than risking the vulnerability that comes with receiving. Now, the facade is tough and stoic, but inside there is a well of pain and hurt and unworthiness. I remember when I'm, you know, my um, example earlier about my mom and the suicide. I, I'm sure I didn't consciously think it at the time, but deep down inside, what does that mean about me if my mom can easily take her life? Right? That means I'm not very important. I'm not very worthy if she could easily make that decision. So what's wrong with me, right? So remember that this unworthiness at the, is at the core of all of this, and the counterdependent tries to pretend like it's not there, just like the codependent does. But there's this 
this, from the outside, they look capable and strong. Now, counterdependency usually shows up when we experience a type of wounding that created a survival strategy where we convinced ourselves connection or vulnerability wasn't safe in some way, or we couldn't, we couldn't have um, connection, or it wasn't safe to be vulnerable. Control shows up here too. Remember, we, we, we have to plan. Counterdependency looks like planning. It looks like um, even not getting close to people, not letting them to get close, and planning our escape route even before it happens. Well, you may love me today, but this is what I'll do when you leave me, kind of thoughts. We might test our partner over and over again, trying to see if they are worthy of our trust. I did that a lot. I sabotaged uh, my relationships all the time, all the time. Might as well see, if, are you going to leave me if I do this or say that? If you saw my deep unworthiness, would you go? Right? So in this way, our standards on ourselves can be extremely high, perfectionistic, um, almost unattainable, and our love for others and ourselves conditional. This strategy, like codependency, might keep us safe, but it also keeps us from, experience what re from experiencing what real connection is. Codependency, there, there tends to be a lot of feeling involved in it, um, perhaps too much in some ways, like the well is, is turned on high. In, in counterdependency, this is where it almost looks like we're robots. The feeling sense is usually walled off to a pretty large extent. Um, and and this, it takes some work to kind of saw back into our feeling senses here. I mean, it makes sense, right? If you're, it was not worth having feelings, if you didn't, you had to survive. I mean, you were too busy surviving to try to process what all this was about. Might as well just turn those things off. Right? Be responsible. So both co-dependency and counter-dependency are really two extremes as the way we adapted in childhood. I mean, it, it can exemplify the ways we got hurt and, and how we learned to defend ourselves against future hurt. One is the strategy of relying on this external validation of others to give us feelings of definition, worth, and meaning. Actually, they both are, right? Um, but counterdependency is more about walling ourselves off um, to keep others out. One is, is about, I need people to define me. And the second one, counterdependency, I need no one to define me. So it's almost like we define ourselves in reaction to another, whereas a codependent um, channels them, their sense of self through the other. Again, both um, are keeping us from finding a real sense of inner worthiness or healthy autonomy, where both, both places keep us disconnected from our inner space. And I'll, I'll add that many times we cycle through both, and we choose different strategies with different people, depending on who they are. All right? The extent, you know, the, the intent, I should say, of, of both strategies um, is valid. Because what we are wanting is to feel loved, connected, and accepted. But the way in which we are attempting to get it will never actually give us what we are looking for. 
because we cannot protect, control, or defend our way into love. In fact, the, the, the love that we're actually seeking cannot be found anywhere but in that hole we feel inside of us. And we're going to get into that later, right? But the, but the fact is, these, co- these are just coping strategies. These behaviors that we have, these are just ways to defend ourselves. But they will never bring us to a place of love, acceptance, or worth. We will never take care of somebody enough to feel good about ourselves. We will never control our external world enough to feel the whole we feel inside. And we can never feel love if we're walling ourselves off from true intimacy. And I really want to reiterate this point that we do these things because on some level they quote-unquote work. They, they are probably not very healthy. They are not they are definitely not conscious, you know, until we make them so. But there is a reason why we continue with any behavior, particularly these. Right? If, think about it. It's, it's protecting us from looking at a very, very deep shadowed part of ourselves. So we might keep up these patterns because, because they're habit, sure. But we do it because if it's you, then it's not me. And I don't have to even look at that horrible feeling of unworthiness or shame I feel inside. You know, if it's you complete me or it's all your fault, if it's all about you, then I don't have to look inward and deal with this crap. So I think that, you know, this is a way that we protect ourselves from the hurt and pain that we've felt and it's a way of, of not really knowing how or wanting to look at those parts of ourselves that we have created that we are unworthy. So it's a way to try to get connection with others without really having to risk vulnerability or of feeling what we really feel. But that doesn't work, right? And that is the problem. So to heal it, which... I think we can. I, there's other people that have the disease model that, that maybe, you know, think it can be managed more than healed, but um, I think we can. Um, I myself certainly have done tons of work around this particular issue. I think that, um, but to heal it, we have to go deeper into those places. And this is where help I, is really a good idea. Therapists, coaches, support groups, church, you know, whatever you do to feel supported, um, find some support around this stuff. Because what you're going to find, the, the most wonderful thing can happen, is when we go into those deeper places, they're really not as scary as we think they are. We, we make them up to be the monster under the bed. You know, our shadow is this big scary thing. And um, it's when we shine the light on it, it's really just a story. It's a story, and we can have compassion for those parts of ourselves that never got it. In a way, we reparent ourselves to wholeness. So I want to I promise that there is a way out, and the next shows we're going to be looking at that. But I think you have to go in to do it. We can't sort of externally manage ourselves into fixing this stuff. We have to go into those places that... Um, are somewhat shadowed. So that's 
that's the, the, the first show, the conclusion of the first show on um, the first segment on, on codependency and counterdependency. I hope you found it helpful. I'm going to say that the next, the next show is going to be going into a little bit about sort of more in depth about the behaviors that show up so you can really track yourself and where you are in your relationships now. Um, because codependency does look like caretaking. I gave you some good examples here today. But it, it doesn't always. And so I think it's really helpful to look at what are the ways that it can show up in our relationships. So we're going to talk a bit about that. And then I'm going to bring in the um, sort of where we're going, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, it's called interdependency. and maybe some tools and strategies on how to to move forward into that place. At the same time, we're going to be answering some questions about relationships. Um, and those questions that I brought up at the beginning of this show and looking deeper into um, what is the purpose of relationships. So that will be the next show. Um, I do want to say that since this series is, is going a little bit deeper than some of my other um, series have, I, I really encourage you to share. Share how it's, it's going for you. Um, as I said, you can find me, alekasky.com. Send me an email. Um, of course, I'll be happy to keep it anonymous. I won't share it if you don't want me to. But if you have experienced this kind of conditioning and you want to share your story, that's that's a very helpful thing. Um, or share how codependency looks for you. If you have questions about this topic, if you have um, any insight that you'd like to share, I would be more than happy to share it on the air and make this a collaborative process. So, or just email me and I'll, I'll email you back privately. Um, yeah, so, so I hope this was helpful. I hope this gave you some parameters of understanding about what this thing is called codependency, and perhaps you saw yourself in some of this. Please remember to come to your place, you know, come to a place of compassion and being able to love yourself because you did what you did because you had to do it and you learned what you had, you know, you learned what you needed to do to survive. And that was, that was courageous and that was wise. Um, but those patterns are keeping you from a place of thriving because surviving isn't thriving. Right? So that's why we want to look at these patterns, because if you've developed some of those strategies, then you're likely feeling a bit stuck. And that's what this series is all about. Okay. My deepest gratitude for listening, and I would appreciate any feedback. Until the next segment, take care. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.